Hello and welcome to PW Kids Cast, the children's book podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors and illustrators creating books for children and teens. I'm John Sellers, the children's reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Today I'm speaking with best-selling author Rick Riordan, who's built his career in children's books around mixing classic myths with modern-day kids. First, there was his Percy Jackson and the Olympian series, which led to two feature films and the Heroes of Olympus spin-off series. Then came the Kane Chronicles, a trio of books in which siblings Sadie and Carter Kane tangle with the gods of Egyptian myth. Now readers can get an irreverent tour of Norse mythology in The Sword of Summer, the first book in the Magnus Chase and the Gods of Asgard series. It's just been published by Disney Hyperion, which is sponsoring this podcast. In The Sword of Summer, readers meet 16-year-old Magnus, who is living on the streets of Boston after being orphaned by the death of his mother. After a run-in with a fire giant, Magnus learns that, like Percy Jackson, he's also a demigod, with a powerful deity as a father. As Magnus tries to locate the Sword of Summer, his birthright, he's joined by a diverse crew of allies who try to stay ahead of enemies who are trying to bring about nothing less than the end of the world. Rick, thank you for speaking with me. Of course. And uh, congratulations on the book's release. Uh, how does it feel to have it out there in the world? It's amazing. Uh, it, you know, it's always like having a new child. You, know, you just can't believe after all the, that preparation, it's finally time. And you've already been out there doing events for the book, right? Yeah, we've just started. We did an event in Boston and uh, one in New York and uh, I think six more to go. Tackling Norse myth, is that something that readers have been asking you about over the years? Uh, from time to time, yes, uh, although really it's a personal passion of mine. I think Norse mythology is really what got me involved in mythology in the first place. When I was about 12 or 13, uh, I was a big fan of The Lord of the Rings, and I had a very astute English teacher who said, well then, you should read Norse mythology because that's where The Lord of the Rings came from. And ever since then, I've, I've been wanting to do something someday with Thor, Loki, Odin, and all the gang. Hmm. You know, as you've studied and become familiar with these myths over the years, are there characteristics of these stories on the whole that have struck with you, maybe compared to their Greek or Egyptian counterparts? Yeah, the Norse gods are a lot more approachable, I think, than the Greek gods. They are not as aloof. I mean, Thor is the kind of guy who would muscle his way up to the bar and buy around for the table, you know, and, and just sort of sit down and trade stories with you and talk with the common people, uh, and that's just the kind of guy he is. Um, they're also wilder, they're uh, ruder and cruder uh, than the Greeks, and I, I think really the Vikings kind of invented middle school humor, and I guess that's why they appeal to me. Hmm. And of course, there's the fact that they're not uh, even immortal, kind of raises the stakes a little bit. Absolutely, yes. They can die, and in fact, they all know that come Ragnarok, they will die. Uh, so that does put a very sort of gloomy Nordic feel to the whole story. <laughs> so all of your series for young readers kind of feel rooted in a sense of place, you know, Manhattan for Percy Jackson, Brooklyn featured in the Kane Chronicles, and now Boston for this series. For you, when you're bringing these classic gods and myths into the present, is it that you sort of want to have this really strong sense of where you're putting them, where you're bringing them? I guess I think geographically. Uh, I always have. Um, and when I was first telling uh, The Lightning Thief to my son as a bedtime story, uh, off the top of my head, I was picking locations that we had visited as a family that my son could easily uh, visualize. And I've just continued that. I, I use writing, as many writers do, as a form of travel. Um, and I try to make location a character in all the books. It, it just simply for me makes it more interesting. And are you, are you still living in Boston now or is that a past? Yes. No, uh, we, we are still living in Boston. We've been here for about uh, three years now and just love it. Mm -hmm. And I know the city itself has some sort of ties or at least 
suppose it ties to the sort of the world of the Viking and the Norse myth. Is that something you had been long aware of and knew was sort of an easy entree into using the city in the book? It was not easy. Uh, it's not something that I was aware of until I started researching the possibility uh, and then was amazed by how many connections there really are. Uh, it's never been proven that the Vikings got that far in their explorations, but there's been lots of speculation. Uh, and of course, Boston likes to style itself the hub of the universe. <laughs> and so I made that literally true by putting Yggdrasil, the world tree, right in the middle of downtown. You've also included it in several of your books over the years, uh, sort of winking references to some of the other series and other worlds. There's a concrete connection that ties Magnus to Percy's world, which in the interest of spoilers, we don't have to talk about if you don't want to. But in your own head, how do you see the worlds of Percy and Sadie and Carter and now Magnus uh, connecting? I absolutely see them as being concurrent and parallel. Uh, And I love the idea of characters from one series popping in for a visit to another series if if I just sort of get the idea that that's what needs to happen. Uh, It's fun for readers. uh, It's fun for me. But it also is nice that they're separate and people don't have to know anything about Percy Jackson to read the Magnus Chase books. They are distinct in themselves, although you have these nice little Easter eggs for the people who have read Percy Jackson. And as far as this book, you know, there's a really broad range of characters and not even just the fact that some of them are elves and dwarves and giants. Uh, you know, Magnus is uh, homeless when the book opens. Hearthstone is deaf and mute. Uh, Samira the Valkyrie is of Iraqi descent. Uh, can you talk about how some of these characters took shape for you? Sure. I mean, Magnus himself, um, I was reading an article in the Boston Globe about teenage homelessness in Boston way before I started the book. And that really stuck with me. Uh, I was, of course, aware of the homeless problem and the winters in Boston being so harsh. It's a big issue. I was not aware of how many kids uh, are actually on the streets. And I, I remembered back to my teaching days when I had several kids that were homeless that I would teach in the classroom and how amazing it always was to me how together and how resilient these kids were considering what was going on for them outside the classroom. And with Magnus, I kind of wanted to put a face to that, and I kind of wanted to honor that experience. With um, the ASL, the um, the elf who uses sign language, that's something that's always fascinated me. I think it's a beautiful form of communication. When I was a counselor in college uh, at a summer camp, uh, a fellow uh, counselor used to interpret Uh, music via sign language. And I was just always struck by how gorgeous the lyrics were when it became a visual language. Uh, So that's something I had fun exploring uh, with Hearthstone. And as for Samira al-Abbas, the the Muslim-American Valkyrie, you know, I was reading my primary documents uh, and one of the best sources we have for a description of the Viking world is by a ambassador named Ibn Fadlan, who was from um, the Caliphate of Baghdad. And he went up and met the Vikings in Russia and interacted with them and wrote about them. And I thought, well, there's a connection you don't often think of, you know, the, the Islamic Middle East meeting the Viking world, but it's right there. Uh, so I, I decided to play around with that idea, and Samira came out of that. And she's also kind of a way to honor former students of mine. I've taught you know many Muslim American kids over the years, and one that I, I really, really remember very strongly was um, where I was on 9-11, 2001. I was teaching American history in San Antonio. And uh, when we heard the news about the, the Twin Towers, one of my students, who was a Muslim-American girl, burst into tears because she immediately recognized what this meant for her, 
what it meant for her family, her religion, and she was thrust into the spotlight, sort of forced to be an ambassador for herself and for what she believed. And the weight of what she was experiencing really, really stuck with me. It inspired me to learn about Islam and to learn uh, about her experience and her culture and how it's often twisted uh, and misunderstood in the media. And so Samira, again, is a way to kind of honor that uh, and, and sort of bring that to the forefront, I hope. Did you also know early on, especially having spent time with these myths, uh, that uh, Ragnarok was something you wanted to sort of bring into these books and sort of make a, a part of uh, Magnus' story? Yeah, I mean, you can't avoid Ragnarok uh, if you're talking <laughs> about the Norse myths. I mean, it's everywhere. It's, it's, it's the end. You know, it's the ending of the whole mythology cycle. And so you can't get away from it. Everyone knows in Norse mythology uh, when they'll die, how they'll die, who's going to kill them. And what do you, you know, sort of what do you do with that? I mean, if you have that information, how do you make the the story have tension? Uh, and so I had to play around with that idea. Okay, so I know I'm going to die. That doesn't mean that between here and there, I can't change the details. And that's how I'm going to rebel against destiny. Well, you know, on a lighter note than the end of the world and some of the more serious issues you're sort of exploring through some of the characters, uh, you're also obviously having a lot of fun blending the mythological and the modern in this book, just like you have in many of your others. You've got the fact that Valhalla is sort of like a TARDIS-like hotel, enormous on the inside, mm-hmm. complete with a gift shop. You recast the goddess Ran or Ran as a kind of hoarder, basically, um, right. where there's certain moments or elements where the ancient and the modern sort of dovetails together in ways that you were just really happy with. Uh, Yeah, sure. I mean, Thor, I I think, could fit in in just about any era, but I really like the idea of him being deployed, you know, for decades out there in the giant lands and being so bored that his only entertainment would be streaming TVs on his uh, hammer. You know, I mean, what else would you do while you're out there fighting the giants? (laughs) And the idea of Aegir, the the brewer of the gods, being sort of this hipster who's into microbrewing, you know, that made just total sense to me. And the idea of Valhalla as a hotel. I mean, I think it would be a hotel. It's not meant as a permanent home. It's just where you stay, where you train until Ragnarok when we all get to die. Is it right then that this series is currently planned as a trilogy? That's right. Uh, Yes. The second book will be The Hammer of Thor and that will be out next fall. Excellent. And, you know, this is not your only book out this year. You also published your second collection of stories uh, from Greek myth, uh, as told by Percy himself. Uh, Do you have any plans to do uh, more of those? Have those been fun to to work on? Those have been exceptionally fun. I would love to do more. Uh, It's just a question of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have so much on the plate already that I don't know uh, if or when that would happen. But yeah, I'm I'm having a great time with everything. It's just I wish I could clone myself so I could do more. (laughs) I think the readers would probably uh, say something similar. <laughs> so do you feel like, you know, even, I mean, you've certainly been involved in Percy's world for, you know, many years now. Do you, do you feel like there's still more you could write in terms of the Greek myths specifically? Or Yeah, it's funny. You should ask. I mean, we were, were just talking about that on this tour. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I was writing Percy's Greek gods, I, I kept coming back to the story of Apollo and how he was punished by Zeus, uh, by being sent down to the earth as a mortal and forced to work for a king. And this happened twice in Greek mythology. And so uh, my next outing into Percy's world is going to be told from the point of view of Apollo, who is uh, hurtling down to earth and becomes a mortal teenage boy with no power. 
Uh, and of course, he has lots of enemies, and he has to figure out what he's supposed to do to become a god again, and he's going to need help. So you're going to see a lot of the characters from the other series come in and try to help Apollo uh, on his journeys. Some of those first kids who were young when the first uh, Percy books came out are, of course, now in, you know into college and sort of beyond. Do you feel like you still hear from some of those original fans? And, and on the flip side, do you get the sense that just every passing year there are kids who are constantly finding their way to the Percy books and the Kane books and uh, many of the other projects you're working on? Uh, yes, both things are true. I hear from uh, people all the time that say, you know, I, I read these first in middle school and I'm, I'm out of college now and I still enjoy them. Or they'll say they really helped me through a very rough time or they, they helped me sort of define what I want to do in my life. Uh, and that's, that's amazing to get that kind of feedback. And at the same time, there are always uh, new waves of middle grade readers that are coming in and finding the series. Uh, so it's been incredibly uh, fulfilling for me to, to kind of think that um, all of these readers are coming to the books and and you know the the demographic of the readership is getting bigger and bigger. You know, as for yourself, as for now, is it sort of tour first and then onto the the next books in this series? Is that sort of your what's on the horizon for you? Yes, I, I mean I will be writing on the Apollo project as I'm touring mm-hmm. uh, because you know really I've, I have to if I'm going to keep up with the deadline schedule I've set for myself. But fortunately, I still love my job. Uh, I love what I do, so you know I'm not going to complain. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, congratulations again on the new book, and uh, thanks again for speaking with me. My pleasure. Once again, I've been speaking with Rick Riordan, whose new book, The Sword of Summer, is out now from Disney Hyperion. Thank you for listening to PW KidsCast. Cast.